Kia ora, I'm Emil Bonovan, and today on The Detail... Gets the gold medal at New Zealand. Finally, in the last race of the evening, pick up where they went off yesterday, left off yesterday, and they take the gold medal. Coming through as well. It was another incredible day for Aotearoa taking medals at the Commonwealth Games, putting New Zealand at number three on the table. New Zealand has finished as the top nation in the track cycling at the Birmingham Commonwealth Games after another golden day for the Riders in Black. In the 92 years since the first Commonwealth Games, or as they were known then, the Empire Games, many countries have seized their own sovereignty. They've become republics. They've moved away from the colonial power, which, let's be clear, these games were created to celebrate. And yet, still they persist. So today on the programme, Otago Daily Times sports editor Hayden Meikle and commentator Phil Gifford, who first covered the Games in 1970, cast their minds over this strange, anachronistic celebration of sport. They explain why they're still relevant, why they're still fun, and what function they serve in a post-imperial world. Phil Giver, welcome back to The Detail. Great to have you here. Yeah, lovely to be here. Uh, I was talking to a friend, Phil, about the Commonwealth Games, and they rather uncharitably described it as the shitty Olympics. Um, <laughs> tell, me, tell me why this friend is wrong, if you would. Well, first of all, you're not the only person with friends that aren't crazy about the Commonwealth Games. My mate Peter Fitzsimons from the Sydney Morning Herald, who of course is the head of the, um, of the Australian Republican Party, calls them the Colonial Games. Mm. And John Oliver, the acerbic British comedian, has said, how can you take a thing seriously where the best sprinters are from Wales? <laughs> well, imagine the Olympics without the United States, China and Russia. Then imagine a track meet dominated by sprinters from Wales. Wales! And you have the Commonwealth Games. Despite all of that, I still love the Commonwealth Games. And yes, I know they are. Of course they're weird. I mean, it's kind of like saying, let's have a, a big sporting event where only countries that's, whose name ends in the letter A are allowed to compete sort of thing. It's as, it's as random as that. But the reason I love the Commonwealth Games is because they give a chance, I think, to a lot of very, very good athletes. And I use that in the broader sense of the word, from lawn bowls to track and field, mm. to actually compete against other people that are not mugs. Look, okay, yes, there are some areas where patently the best in the world are not there, but there is something about the Commonwealth Games that is, I suppose, homely is the word I would use, and that's the reason I've always enjoyed them and still do. They are what they are. Hayden Meikle is the sports editor of the Otago Daily Times. They don't pretend to be the Olympics. They're not the Olympics. They don't pretend to be anything other than what they are. Once every four years a slightly unusual, anachronistic, weird gathering of random sports, which is only getting more and more random every four years. <laughs> it's strange, it's weird, but it's kind of fun. And can't sport just be like that occasionally? Isn't that okay? Go and have a look at some of the things where they are the best in the world, like the Rugby Sevens, for example. Dare I mention it, given that we finished third in both of them, but that's by the by. The final whistle is gone. And we have been treated to a, a match worthy of a gold medal contest here. New Zealand take bronze in Birmingham. Well, maybe go and look at some of the swimming events where you've got a Kiwi, Lewis Clearbart, who would appear to be the best in the world at the moment. 15 metres to swim. Clearbart putting in the big ones. They go to the line. 
and he, and he's winning a gold medal, which is which is pretty inspiring. Maybe look at the triathlon, even though we had the bizarre business of the disqualification of yeah. Hayden Wall. So Hayden Wall makes a turn for home. He is in the lead. Is he aware of the penalty? Who knows? But for now, Hayden Wild of New Zealand... But look, there are some events where the people are absolutely world-class. There are other competitors. But look, to be fair, think of Eddie the Eagle. He was an English um, ski jumper, which was insane. And he he jumped about half as far as the other guys, and he became famous, the poor bloke, because like Evil Knievel, who crashed all the time, the American stuntman from back in the day, Eddie the Eagle... He flew for a little while and then he'd always crash land. You know, that was his stock and trade. And, and, and he became a national hero in the UK. Should he have been at the Winter Olympics? Yeah, of course he should have. He was the best in England. Is England world famous in the Olympics for actually uh, the ski jumping? Hell no, because they don't have any mountains there. You look at the Olympic Games and in its frenzied sort of bid for relevance, there's that word again, and, and of course for the almighty dollar, busy adding in all sorts of bizarre things, I think. Am I right in saying breakdancing mm. is at the uh, the next Olympic Games? Heavens above. Mm. Um, the Commonwealth Games, yep, they've introduced some bits and pieces. I, I don't know if I'm in love with three-on-three basketball. I'd like to have traditional basketball, but but then basketball's at the Olympics, and there's also a Basketball World Cup. There's plenty of basketball happening, so mm. perhaps that one does make sense. But no, netball's good. Bowls, of course, we have a massive history with bowls at the Commonwealth Games, and and mock it all you like, ye Philistines. But <laughs> bowls is a a big a big part of this country and a and a fine sport, and weirdly entertaining television. Yeah. If you've ever watched it, it can be really a bit like darts, I suppose. Really interesting to watch. So, look, I think the choice of sports is is broadly um, rather grand, and of course, we win at lots of them, so that helps. Compared to the Commonwealth Games, I find the Olympics, even though I thrill when wonderful people like Valerie Adams win gold there, but the Olympics is so bloated and so grubby and so much money's involved in actually getting them to, to your city and so on and so forth. And the Olympics has things like breakdancing. Now, I'm not knocking breakdancing because the young people that are breakdancers are, in their own way, incredible athletes. But if you can have breakdancing at the Olympics, why can't you have lawn bowls at the Commonwealth Games? I know what you mean when you say that. There is a slightly distasteful aura surrounding the Olympics, isn't there? I mean, the Commonwealth Games are different in that you don't get the sort of – it's not like a, a proxy for geopolitical warfare. And, I mean, even when people drugs cheat at the Commonwealth Games, I'm not so much outraged as I am sort of like, oh, really? At, at the Commonwealth yeah. Games? Yeah. Well, I mean, the Olympics have been obscene ever since they took them to Berlin in 1936 and Hitler was there giving Nazi salutes to when, when Germans won events, you know. The Olympics has been corrupt at the highest level forever. That's just the harsh reality. But exactly as you say, Emil, while, while the Olympics, there's just something that's a little bit cringy about them because of the fact that they are the plaything of incredible megapowers, whereas the Commonwealth Games, again, it, it does, it has a tiny hint to me and ever since I was lucky enough to go to the first Com Games that I went to was in 1970 in Edinburgh as, as a journalist, I've got to say that I'd been to the Mexico Olympics two years before in 1968. I was there when uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos did their Black Power protest uh, after the 200 metres final. And even then, there was such a massive difference between the sort of almost humbleness of the Commonwealth Games and the friendliness of the Commonwealth Games. I know it sounds cliched, but it's actually a fact. And the 
enormous thing that, that, that the Olympics already were by 1968. You mentioned that the first Commonwealth Games that you covered is in, was in 1970, so presumably you were, you were there when we hosted the Commonwealth Games in ni- 1974. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Games in Christchurch were just one of the, I hesitate to use the word lovely about a sports event, but it was. It was just something that was fantastic about it, you know, and track and field was sort of the superstar sport at the 1974 Commonwealth Games. And it started with, of course, Dick Taylor winning the 10,000 metres on the first day uh, at the track at QE2. Black undoubtedly has a chance if he's got anything left, but Taylor's the man going away. Black can't go. And it looks like the first gold in the track events for New Zealand. And that was an extraordinary achievement because, amongst other people, he beat a guy from England called David Bedford, who at the time was the world record holder. Mm. So at that stage, the track actually, particularly with, uh, in middle distances with the African nations especially, uh, and some of the British runners as well, track was really seriously top-ranked then. So it started on the first day of track and field, with Dick Taylor winning the 10,000 metres, and it finished with probably the greatest 1,500 metres race there's ever been in the world, where Philbert Bai from Tanzania won the gold medal and broke the world record, and John Walker from uh, New Zealand, of course, um, now Sir John Walker, John Walker finished second, and he also broke what had been the current world record. Hayden Meikle also brought up this race in his piece about the Commonwealth Games in the ODT last week. Meikle asked a select group of sporting luminaries about their favourite Games moments, and one of the responses he got was from the chief executive of the Otago Highlanders, Roger Clark. He was living in Wellington as a kid, and he and his wee cousin, I think, were taken by their nana from Wellington down to Christchurch for the 1974 Commonwealth Games. As mentioned, a massive moment in New Zealand sport. And Roger wrote these lovely memories of watching, uh, it was called the Race of the century or race of the lifetime at, at the time, um, the 1500 metres final. So to John Walker, and, you know, you've probably seen the clips or seen the photos or heard about it. You know, John Walker, he he made your heart sing. He had the long hair. He just, he ran beautifully. And he was, of course, in a great battle with Philbert Bailly, the, the legendary runner uh, who sadly would miss the Olympics two years later. And, and Roger wrote about the effect that that amazing race had on him but really pointedly, he talked about the next day him and his cousin went out running. And I've heard that story a lot from people, that the jogging craze and the running craze, it, it really spikes after an event like that. And that's, I think, yeah, they, these are fun events. These are sporting events. When it boils down to they're a, a glorious, trivial pursuit, but it does have an effect. You know, a little boy watches a runner and he goes out the next day and starts running. So when you are at that age and things do imprint on you so much easier, they they stick with you. And that's fine. I, I do think of kids, hopefully, whether it's on TikTok highlights or live coverage or, or reading the newspaper, my goodness, they, they're seeing things in Birmingham that might be striking a chord with them. I think of a swimmer watching Lewis Clearbird uh, or mm-hmm. Sophie Pascoe or any of these swimmers in the pool or a cyclist. Imagine a cyclist watching these amazing black-clad New Zealand cyclists tearing up the track. I, they do have an impact. They do have a transformative impact on sport, and that's quite nice. I want to go back to, to the 1974 games. Like, what was the vibe? What was the atmosphere surrounding us holding the games then? Was it, 
you know, what was there a palpable sense of expectation and, and excitement in the, in the country? Oddly enough, not really. And, and, and it took Taylor's 10,000 metres to set those games alight. But once that happened, then I think everybody in New Zealand went absolutely crazy on it. Look, <laughs> I've got to share with you how we got those games. I happened by accident to be a little bit of a witness to how that came about because there was a guy called Ron Scott, later Sir Ron Scott, who's now passed away, and he was basically the lobbyist for Christchurch to get those games. And I first met him at the Mexico City Olympics in 1968 when he was whining and dining delegates from the Commonwealth. And then we fast forward to 1970 at Edinburgh where I was working for New Zealand Press Association again, and Ron and his team from Christchurch, they had a suite at the United Services Hotel, which is a very grand old hotel in the main street of Edinburgh. And I always remember going in the first time there, and they were, um, what's the word, there was a lot of hospitality. But they had floor to ceiling, and they were very high ceilings, a huge wall of crates of beer, (laughs) cartons of beer. So that was it. And then they had the most extraordinary, which I was at just briefly, they had the most extraordinary reception, and, and it, it wasn't at the hotel, it was at a function room somewhere, for the delegates, because Melbourne were competing with Christchurch for the 74 games, and it, and it always, in those days, it got announced at the previous games, which in this case, 1970, Edinburgh. Anyway, the party was quite extraordinary. Now, it may be an urban myth, but I, I have heard that they actually had to check under all the tables at the reception at breakfast time and drag out one of the delegates and put him into a taxi and get him to the to the committee to the committee meeting to make the vote. And Melbourne didn't do any of that sort of stuff. Melbourne just believed, oh, little Christchurch, they've got no chance. I'm oh, sorry, I'm doing a bad Australian uh, accent. Yeah, Melbourne good. believed Christchurch had no chance and didn't really turn on the charm, much less the uh, the celebrations and the uh, libations. But Melbourne got two votes. <laughs> Christchurch got all the rest, <laughs> and so I, it was a, it was an absolutely. I mean, I, I remember writing writing a story a few years later, saying of Ron Scott that greater love hath no man than he lay down his liver for his country. <laughs> On a beautiful Auckland summer's evening, the games are back in New Zealand after 16 years. In the next two and a half hours... We're for a generation of us, the 1990 Commonwealth Games were massive. And for me, I was in my third form, or year, year nine as it's called these days, so it was a big year for me anyway. Uh, 1990 was officially New Zealand's sesquicentennial, 1840, of course, the Treaty of Waitangi. So the, our 150th as a country, there was a feeling that New Zealand was celebrating... Auckland had been awarded the Commonwealth Games. There were just so many great stories. And and I realised when I wrote my little portion of that memory lane piece, all of my memories were of of female athletes, which I think is kind of interesting because, you know, in the early 1990s, we hadn't yet seen this wave, this sort of women's sporting revolution, which, let's face it, has only really taken hold in the past five to ten years. It continues at pace. But in the early 90s, there wasn't a lot of elite-level women's sport to watch on TV. So perhaps that's why the Commonwealth Games stood out so much. It was a rare opportunity to see some of these great women. And so that quartet, what an amazing bunch of stories. So Tanya Murray was a high jumper, actually from Otago. To me, at least, my memory is she was completely unheralded going into the Commonwealth Games. 
Uh, and high jump is one of those great TV sports. And so Tanya Murray stood out. What a shout has gone up. A gold medal for New Zealand in the high jump after a highly dramatic jump off. Silver for Janet Boyle. Gold for 19-year-old Tanya Murray. Uh, Anna Simsic was a swimmer, a superb swimmer, who was labelled Anna Swim Quick. Um, obviously, I don't think that was me, but hugely witty. Simsic knows it's coming. Simsic holding on, 10 metres to swim. Livingston coming. Goal for Simsic! Simsic Swim Quick, and she did. She was fast and kind of, she had one of those great personalities. She was a great television interview. She just seemed to be having a lot of fun. And again, to me and others, I think she came out of nowhere. Uh, Nikki Jenkins, just one of the most amazing stories, 14 years old. Well, what odds would you have got on this before the Games? Never before in New Zealand's gymnastics history. An international gold. Just a kid, even in gymnastics terms, just a kid, uh, uh, my memory is, yeah, she was, again, completely unexpected. I think she was a late replacement in the field, uh, and she came through and kind of charmed a nation by winning a gold medal. She was just a beautiful story. But the story of the 1990 Commonwealth Games was Millie Khan, uh, known as the Queen of the Green. We've talked about bowls. Well, she was one of the great bowl stories for fairly sad reasons, to be honest. She had a wonderful campaign. She made the final of the women's singles, uh, and utterly tragically, Millie's little grandson, he died on the day of her final, the day of the women's singles final. He was just, I think, not even one year old. The little boy died, and it just seems extraordinary looking back now, but that news was kept from Millie Khan uh, quite deliberately. I think Bowles New Zealand at the time made the deliberate decision that she would be completely shielded, presumably in conjunction with the family. I'm not sure of the full story, but... Millie was not told about that. Um, she was kept away from the media. Of course, Emil, 1990, a vastly different time. No internet, no Twitter, no no round-the-clock sort of news cycle. Uh, and she she competed. She played. She lost. Uh, she claimed the silver medal. Uh, and then to be told shortly afterwards the devastating news of the death of her, her grandson. And obviously that story was extremely sad, uh, very powerful. And and Millie was kind of just a beloved figure, almost the grandmother of, of the nation. And so I think, yeah, look, Millie and, and the other three, and just the fact that, you know, it was the last time we hosted the Commonwealth Games and, you know, the, you and others have not seen New Zealand host the Commonwealth Games in their lifetime. And suddenly that's 32 years have passed and I don't know, are people even talking about the possibility of us hosting them again? Now, the Sports Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson says the government is considering hosting the Games at some point in the future. Mr Robertson is on his way to uh, the UK where he will attend the Games in Birmingham. But before he left, he told Stuff a preliminary analysis of the feasibility of hosting the Commonwealth Games is underway. This at a time when it's becoming harder to find host venues and when the event's standing in a packed global schedule is being questioned. There are lots, well, there are some people at least who will look at the Commonwealth Games and they'll be like, hmm, I don't know about this. Feels a little bit colonial. It has a complicated history. Britain has a complicated history. This is one of the last remaining remnants in a, in a sense of the ambitions of Britain. I mean, are the two completely separate in your mind? Can they be separated from from one another? Well, not not really. I mean, 
I managed to do it because, as I said, I actually enjoyed the event. But let's face it, I mean, when they started in 1930, they were the Empire Games because nobody had ever dreamed that Great Britain would ever lower itself to a thing like the Commonwealth rather than just ruling by right, you know. So, look, separating history from what you're seeing on the ground, I mean, I covered the 1981 Springbok Tour for the Listener magazine, and I'm a rugby tragic. I have been the whole of my life. And there were times during that tour when, because I was I was against the tour on, on a personal basis, but there were times during that tour when I sort of questioned rugby. And the way that I justified it to myself was I actively disliked what was happening and I abhorred the fact that the Springboks were here in 1981. Nevertheless, rugby in itself is completely non-political. It's just a sport. It's a bunch of rules in a little rule book. And the fact that it is then people that run it um, do things that I uh, personally, morally and politically disagree with, rugby's not to blame for that. It's the people running it. Getting back to the Commonwealth Games, the Games themselves, when young men and women are out compared, well, not just young men and women, because there's lawn bowls. So when, when, men and women are out, when men and women are out competing fairly and honestly and sportingly and all that sort of thing, the fact that the name of the outfit that the Games are named after has a fairly chequered history. If you go back, don't have to go back that far, actually. It's got a fairly chequered history. Yes, I am able to, actually, when I think about it, I am able to separate the sport that I watch and enjoy from, in this case, the political aspect that actually started the thing in the first place. I didn't give it any thought at all for a long, long, long time. I'd probably rather, certainly at the moment, not think about the uncomfortable background. I know... Uh, and of course, I think the British, the great British diver Tom Daly talked at length about the Commonwealth Games and the uh, disturbingly high number of countries where homosexuality is still illegal. So these are worthy discussions and certainly worthy to be highlighted. I don't know if that means the Commonwealth Games have no place in the future, even as the Commonwealth changes their pace. And I'm, to be honest, I'm as much as I love watching The Crown on Netflix, I'm a little bit of a Republican. I quite like the idea of New Zealand having its own head of state, mm. uh, but still having a relationship with Britain, recognising that we do have a occasionally tortured but extremely uh, dense past with Britain and the British Commonwealth. I, I've got no problem with people having the discussion and the debate. I'm not sure I'm ready to, to say these things shouldn't exist because... We've got a bit of a history here of some quite deeply unpleasant things involving the mother country. Um, I'd like to see it evolve, as I think things are evolving, and our relationship with Britain has evolved. And who was the most recent country? Was it the Bahamas to officially sort of sever ties? I suspect Australia will probably tip before us, but eventually we'll probably be the same. We'll have our own head of state. Of course we should have have our head of state, but... For now, do I still kind of deep down think there's some vague purpose to this gathering of countries? Yeah, I do. Um, but that springs to mind. Um, do you recall John Oliver's great quote about the Commonwealth Games? No, I don't. He had a piece about the Commonwealth Games, and he was rather scathing, funnily enough. There's a magnificent line about how... Um, we salute this week's Commonwealth Games, the historic display of a once mighty nation gathering together the countries it lost and finding a way to lose to them once more. <laughs> Boom. Thank you. Thank you, John. It says it very well. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. 
The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Alexia Russell. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Hayden Meekle and Phil Gifford. Cheerio. Cheerio.